and uh, we'll be starting a new sermon series this, uh, this next week, and I'm excited about it. It's, um, uh, the title of the series is The Games We Play, and uh, the first sermon is going to be loosely titled Jenga. So that ought to give you an idea of where the children's message is going to go, and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. I encourage you guys, kids, bring your friends, bring your family members. It's going to be interesting. It'll be different. I promise you, you'll be, uh, you'll be educated, I guess. So uh, for the rest of us, I encourage you guys. Uh, we do have, I think the nursery is available today for the little ones. Um, so uh, if you have to let them out, go ahead and do that. And uh, we encourage you guys, turn to the book of uh, Habakkuk. Uh, for those of you that are like me and, and struggle where, where Habakkuk's at, it's right after, uh, Nah, right after Nahum and right before Zephaniah. And I know that that should clear everything up, right? They should know exactly where it's at. So, of course, uh, you know, as I say uh, often, if you have the Al Weeks Official Study Bible, it's on page 1446. Um, if you have the Mike Reed Official Study Bible, he doesn't have his open yet. What page is it on? Oh, you do? Okay. What page is it on? 1178, so obviously mine's a better one because it's a bigger number. So, okay, moving right along. <laughs> so, definitely the book of Habakkuk. We're in chapter 3, um, and we're coming to the, uh, the, well, actually, this will be the last sermon we have in the book of Habakkuk, although the reality is I could probably go another three or four weeks in this study because this last, um, this last chapter is so unbelievably packed with great stuff, but I think we can probably encapsulate it down into one sermon, and we'll try to do a, a, a job swiftly in, in 20 minutes, 20 minutes, that'd be nice. Um, so, but to start off with, you know, I just want, uh, as we're coming through this, obviously we're coming from uh, a time where uh, Habakkuk was crying out to God, he was saying, you know, God, where are you? Um, how can you allow uh, these evil things to happen to us? How can you uh, use um, uh, just pagan and godly people as your instruments to chastise um, us who are far more righteous than they, according to what uh, Habakkuk was asking. Of course, we dealt with that last couple weeks, and now we're getting into this final um, time, this time when Habakkuk is, is, is being changed. And obviously, we've come to a point in, his, in this discussion where, where God has answered Habakkuk twice. And it hasn't been the answer he's wanted, I think, but it's the answer he got. And it, the, the answer he received was the one that really... Um, transformed his thinking. So I'm not going to read the whole passage yet. We're going to get to that in a second. But I just want to start off by reading the very first verse in chapter 3. And you'll see what I mean by changing him. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Sheganoth. Now that should answer it all, right? You should look at that and say, Oh yeah, now I see he's been changed, right? Because it's clear from that first verse. Well, it is if you know what you're looking for, right? Because he just had this moment of where he's crying out to God, his fears, his concerns, his frustrations, and then he's coming to this moment where God is answering him, I mean, which is a beautiful thing. I mean, I don't know how many times I've prayed and asked for God to directly say something to me, right? I would love to have that Charlton Heston cloud parting, God's voice just booming out from the wilderness. We, we need that, Phil. We need that every once in a while. I know, see, because you've you're, 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 you got ear issues, right? And so it'd be nice if God just gave us that deep, resonating voice in the tone that just fills us, right? He doesn't do that very often. And so he did that with, with Habakkuk. And, and so Habakkuk's been shaken. You can tell because it starts off with he was driven to his knees in prayer, okay? 
He had that discussion with God. He's like, gotcha, check, you've answered me, boom. And he falls on his face before God. How do you know he fell on his face? Because of that little phrase in the end, it says, according to Shiganoff. Shiganoff. Everybody knows what that means, right? Yes, it's working on it. It's ancient Hebrew. And the funny thing is, if you really do a deep dive in this word, you're going to see that 90% of the commentators out there tell you it's a beautiful word that's been transliterated, transliterated, uh, from ancient, ancient Hebrew, and we don't know what it means. Well, that's really frustrating. So... Uh, about a couple hundred years ago, there were some folks that really did this this really big dive into the ancient uh, uh, languages of the time, trying to find this word because we really don't know what it is. It's only used in really the Book of Psalms and here. And so, but the best that some of the deepest thinkers in the Christian world can come up with is this word. Um, this word means to uh, to sing or to or to pray, or to uh, read this poem, this psalm, if you will, with, with the deepest uttering, the deepest um, longing, the deepest, most, most mournfully you can, like with great conviction. It's almost like, like when you see that word forte in, in the music word, if, Phil, you know, when he says forte, that means to be really soft and quiet and timid, right? No, it means to be forceful, right? And that's what it means. It means to, to use with, with great and deep and abiding emotion. So he's, he gets the answer from God, and he's driven to his knees, and he writes this prayer from a place of deep emotion, okay? And that's where he starts off. And I, th- and I was thinking to myself this week, you know, as Christians, this is kind of where we are, right? From... From time immemorial, ever since uh, Christ left the earth and the man and and we as mankind have been have left scratching our heads trying to figure out how we how we now live right how do we live in this present moment now that Christ has ascended into heaven the Holy Spirit has ascended what where do we fit in all this how do we make it move and so what has guided uh, Christendom from really the the second century on has been two things creeds and confessions. And I know that explains everything, right? Creeds and confessions. Well, it should if you know anything about biblical history. We have two different things. We have creeds, which was really popular going through the early 300s, 400s, 500s. We have the Apostles' Creed. We have a variety of different creeds. But every once in a while, the creeds that are great bumper sticker faiths, right? This is a bumper sticker uh, kind of mentality back in those days because not everybody read, and they needed to be able to have something they could repeat to remember. So the creeds were easy sound bites. Well, every once in a while, we'd have deep thinkers that said, hey, we need something more than a creed. We want something more than bumper sticker theology. So they come up with these confessions that are usually 6 to 20 pages long, right? And so they had to define it. But the idea is they're trying to define the indefinable. They're trying to wrap their brains around something that's unwrappable. We can't put God in a box, but yet we try. And so some time along that history, we came up with the great and abiding confession called the Westminster Catechism, right? That's a big word. I know some of you know what that is. Some of you don't. Um, The Westminster Catechism was a list of questions that the church asked, and then they answered it for you, right? Because it made it easier, Phil. It's better if you know the answers, right? And and when you're you're talking to the kids in class, I know you're not doing that anymore, and you're probably drones in about that, missing the kids, right? And, and, and what you really love to do is just ask those questions in class, like somebody give me a def- definition of cell theory, right? And, and then you have that kid in the front that raises his hand, oh, oh, me, me, yeah? And you like calling him and he gets it right. It just does something in your soul, doesn't it? 
You're like, it makes you feel like there's, there's hope for the next generation when, yeah, a little bit, a little bit, you know. And so they have these answers, the questions, and then they give the answers out. And so the number one question in the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief goal of mankind? What is our goal? What are we here for? What are we supposed to do? And the answer is really good. It says, our chief aim, our chief goal is to, Phil, you know this, right, glorify God and what? There's an and. And enjoy him forever. I knew you knew that. And so we are to glorify God and enjoy him forever, okay? Those are the chief aim of man. Now, I think that's a little soft, to be honest with you. I think they could have done better, but they were going for the bumper sticker answer that you can memorize. I get that. And I think that's something that we do. So to put it in like modern day Al speak, uh, not that that's modern day, but it's close enough. I would say that, that we as Christians are called to be captivated by what God can do, and by who he is. I like that better, don't you? We are called to be captivated by what he can do and who he is. And I think that we don't do that very well. I think in a modern Christianity, we're good at one of them, but we're not good at both of them. We're really good at having this, what I like to call horizontal theology, right? We're good at, at praising God for all the great things he does. Think about the last time you had a deep time of prayer, and you sort of listed off all the things you're happy about. You're going through that, that model, right? We like to do ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, you know, all the way down to the very end, supplication, right? We try to go through that model. If you're a good Christian and went to Sunday school, that's how you pray. And so we start off with adoration. Oh, Lord, thank you for making the mountains. Thank you for making the moose. Thank you for making my kids behave this week. I mean, all these different thank yous, right? And we say, we say how good God is. And we were so good at pointing out all the things that God does. God is great. And then, uh, you know, we know this. And we say this all the time. Oh, look what God did. Oh, I'm so glad God did this. And that's really what we call horizontal theology right that's where we we're really good at that what we're really not very good at is understanding that vertical getting that getting that that point up there where we are captivated simply by who he is you know that's the that's the frustration i think we have a lot of times in church life is that we're stuck on this horizontal level and we hardly ever get to that vertical worship we try sometimes we, it's an aspiration where it's our goal we want to do this but the reality is that we are pretty much stuck right here on that horizontal and it even happens on Sunday morning. We come in here on Sunday morning, and we expect, we expect the music guy to, to feed us, right, to, to bring us right into the throne room of grace. And we've done no prep, right? I mean, we're driving here to church, and we're yelling at the kids because the kids are bouncing around the back seat because somebody, somebody, we're not going to name who, gave them jelly donuts this morning for breakfast because it was a whole lot easier to give it that to them than actually feed them a decent breakfast. And so they're not clean. They're, they're bouncing around high on sugar, and you're thinking, I can't wait to get there to, to pawn these kids off in the Sunday school teacher way to go gail so you know and to be able to have uh you know have somebody else to deal with them we're yelling at the spouse we're frustrated with our boss we're angry about this situation we pull in the parking lot and your first thing you think is man why is this place not paved that's what i think whenever i pull in here then i'm thinking to myself gosh this is horrible what's going on this is not a place to be and then we come in here and we're like we sit down and i know joel sees it he sits there and you know legs crossed in that in that right nice open posture right ready to receive and he's like, feed me, you know, and you just know it's going to happen, right? You know, it's, and slowly you unfold, right? And you get all there. And once the music starts sinking in your soul about like the sixth song in, and you're like ready to finally get up there. And then we just stop. We stop, we start worshiping. You know, you're just ready to start. We're stopping, right? Because we're moving to the next phase where, where Al's going to jump around and yell and scream, and we're going to do some fun stuff there, right? That's the next phase. And then 
And then, and then when it's all said and done, you're looking back on this, and you've just started to sort of unfold spiritually, right? You're like that flower. You're just starting to open up, and the last thing you hear is like the last thing I say, and you're like, and what you really want me to do is give you like that three-point takeaway, right? I mean, just wrap it all up in a nice little bowl, stick it on a spoon, open up into the mouth, and go, and you can walk away thinking, oh, I've been fed. Yay. I have my I have my neat little package takeaway, and now I can go where I'm going to go the rest of my life and be happy. But you know something? The reality is, that's not what you should come to church for. We should come here to worship God for being great, the great I am, right? We are to worship him and glorify him and do what we can. And when we step in here, why don't we just open up his word and let him be him, right? And just glory in the fact that he is an amazing, powerful, awesome God. Why is it we have to have our our sermons packaged in a nice little three-point message where we can go away and we can talk about it on Sunday afternoon as we we discuss the events of the church? That's nice, but that's not what we're called to do. We're called to go deeper, to have a yearning. Jesus said, blessed are they, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I want you to think back the last time, the last time, and be honest with yourself because you're not raising your hand. No one else is going to know. When was the last time you could honestly say that you hunger and thirsted after righteousness? We're talking you were driven from your sleep at 5 a.m. because you needed to find a moment with God. And then you spend all day, and every waking moment, you want to be with God. I mean, you're stopped at a stoplight. And you got like 10 seconds, right, till the light changes. And what do you do? You open up the Bible. And when you're going, you've got the Bible on audio going. And you're praying and you're moving. I knew this one preacher. This is back in the day before we had cell phones, right? And we had those car phones. Remember that back in the 80s where the rich people had those car phones, right? And he, was, and he, he, would, say, he would say he felt so awkward because he was one of these guys that likes to pray out loud when he's driving. And he's often still praying for other drivers because, you know, they need it a lot, right? Yeah, and, and so he's praying for these other drivers, and he, and he, he remember he was sitting there, he was talking, he was praying, and he happened to look over at a stoplight, and he was just going on with Jesus, you know, and this guy was looking at him like he was insane. So he went home that day, and he, he took one of those old, those old phones, and he cut the cord off, and he, and he taped it down up underneath the seat in his car, so he'd have a, he'd have a, so from that point on, as he was driving, he'd be holding his phone up that he got from his house to look like a car phone, you know. And so then he could look, he'd look wealthy and have time to spend time with God. But when was the last time we actually spent every waking moment with him? I mean, to the point where we don't even want to do anything apart from where he's at. When was the last time that actually happened, where that hunger and thirsting actually took place in your life? I can tell you it doesn't happen all the time. Nobody can sustain that kind of spiritual high. But you ought to be able to remember sometime in the near past where you were like that, a day, a two days, a month maybe, time when you couldn't do anything but spend time with him. That time when you had that deep emotional groaning in your soul that cries out for God, just reveal yourself to me. We don't do that very often. We're really good at this horizontal, but we're not so good at the vertical. And that's where we sort of come back into this. See, we, we look at what he says. And he begins to, and, and, and the prophet begins to, to lay it out before God. He's, he said, I, here's all my frustrations. Here's my concerns. Lord, deal with it. And when the Lord did, he knew he had no other choice but to fall on his knees and pray. And this was his prayer. The prayer is broken up in, in four sections. So I guess I'm, I'm falling into that 
into that four-section, three-point sermon, crisis, conviction, correction. You know, we can get into that, right? We can do, I, I, can, I can write that up. I can put it in my notes, but I'm not really going to follow that. So if you're taking notes today, I apologize. But he does get into this four sections where he, he lays out this prayer. It begin is just, the beginning is just a petition for God to, to maintain and renew the salvation. The second time, the second part of it, it starts in verse 3, is a theophany where, he just, where God just shows up in power. And then verses 8 through 15, it's the story of God fighting the battle for us. And the final section, the last part of the, um, of the chapter, verses 16 through 19, is deals with, with the prophet's sort of statement of faith, where he's at. So we're going to read this beginning section. I just want you guys to follow along with me and hear this, this moment where, God, where, where the prophet is begging for God to renew that salvation and to stay close to him. It says, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. I'm trembling. I'm scared, slapped to death. That's not in there, by the way. That's, that's Al's adding. Okay, moving on. Oh, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known your wrath. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount, from Mount Paran. And then there's that little aside, the word Selah, right? So, Mike, if you're looking at what ancient Hebrew means in, in Selah, you'll probably see the same thing about Shiganoth, right? It means we don't know what it means. But the best guess, the best theological minds that we can come up with means it's a musical note that means simply restful pause. And if the prophet put it in there, then maybe we ought to take a moment and pause in our reading and figure out what he just said. Look what he says, one verse. I mean, well, one and a half, sort of. Well, two. We'll give two verses, right? So he gives us two, well, one and a half, two verses. He says... Lord, I've heard what, you have to, what they've said about you, and it scares me slapped to death. Lord, please revive your work. Remember us. In your wrath, remember mercy. Give us mercy. And then he's like, God comes from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And then he pauses. Because he wants us to think. He wants us to reconnect. He wants us to know where we're at. Because he has been changed, he wants everybody that's hearing this song, because this was a song, everybody hears this song, to pause for a second while the instrumentalists do their thing, and we just take a moment to think about it. And while you're doing that, I've got some great thinkers out there that I want to give you guys some quotes. So if you're taking notes, write fast, because I'm going to read fast. One of my favorite old dead guys that I like to read a lot, his name is Augustine. He was odd, he was crazy, but I enjoyed what he has to say. I don't always agree with him, but I do enjoy it. He said this about his, his moment when he fell deeper into the walk with Christ. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of the fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. He says, you, God, drove them from me. You who are the true and sovereign joy, you drove them from me and you took their place. You who are sweeter than all the pleasure, though not flesh and, and blown. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. Now, of course, you say, well, Augustine, he was a saint, right? Didn't they give him that name? Well, he's a saint, but here, I get a clue for you guys. So are you. If you call Jesus Christ your Savior, then you are a saint before the before the Lord. You may not be as smart as St. Augustine was, Augustine was, but he was still just the same footing. We all have the same moment before the Lord as he does. Nobody has a greater voice than anyone else. As we step before the Lord, we can, can petition the same thing he could do. But the one thing you need to know about Augustine is before he accepted the Lord as his Savior, he was a bit of a ladies' man. He struggled mightily with 
not just one woman, but women in general. And when the Lord came into his life and ripped him away from that old existence and created something new in him, that when he talks about those fruitless joys that he once had, that he was afraid to lose, he was driven from them, and God replaced them with himself. Has God done that for us today? Has he driven you or driven from you the joys that you thought you needed and you don't have them anymore because he's taken their place? I mean, think about that for a minute. I remember when my father got saved many, 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 many years ago. It was somewhere around 1977, 78. I can't remember the exact year. Maybe it was closer to 1980. It was right during one of the hurricanes. And it was a struggle my father was dealing with. Alcoholism had, had overtaken his life. And he said he had a vision one night where Jesus actually came and stood before him and asked him, why are you continually tormenting my body? And my father was speechless in this vision that he had. And Jesus asked him in that vision, do you want me? And my father mutely shook his head in his vision. And in his vision... Jesus Christ reached out and touched his forehead. And from that day till nearly to the day he died, he was stripped of the desire to have alcohol. And God replaced that joy that he used to get, he thought he had by drinking, with a joy that was far surpassed anything he could have ever had in a bottle with himself. And that was a beautiful thing that happened. I didn't understand it. My father didn't understand it. We were going to an Episcopal church. They didn't understand it. It's a bad day when you go to your priest and ask him about this, and he looks at you like, I haven't got a clue how to respond to that, right? I'm like, well, you should be the one. Okay, moving on. So we're now at a place where we talked about Augustine. And you say, well, that's Augustine. That was a long, long, long time ago. It was like AD 300 some odd, right? Well, let's bring it forward a few hundred years, right? Luther had a similar discussion. Martin Luther, the great guy, he says, I wish to devote my mouth and my heart to you, O Lord. I shall teach the people. I myself will, will learn and ponder diligently upon your word. Use me as your instrument, he says, but do not forsake me, for if I ever should be on my own, I will easily wreck it all. Now, interesting enough about, about, Martin, about Martin Luther, he really struggled. If you know anything about his story and his path, he was on a path to being a very wealthy merchant. His family was from a wealthy family. He was going to go to college. He was going to do all this stuff. Brilliant thinker, brilliant man. And he was walking through a forest, uh, walking through an area one day, and lightning came down and struck a tree right next to him. It was a pretty powerful moment. I've never had lightning hit next to me. Anybody else ever had lightning hit next to you? Nobody in here has ever had that happen to them. Um, and I guarantee you, if it did, you'd remember. You'd be telling everybody. And you'd be talking about that event the rest of your life. Well, there was that time, and I was walking through Kenai, and bam! You know? I mean, yeah. It, you, you would be talking about it. It'd be awesome, because you'd be saying, I can't believe I survived, right? Well, he was the same way. He was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I survived. And then he's like, oh, my goodness, maybe I'm in trouble, right? Because who sends the lightning? Well, it has to be God right? And I mean, that, that fortuitous event he's walking through. Now, Phil, we know this has to do with positive and negative ions. It has to do with buildup of electricity and blah, blah. I mean, we all know this, right? But, but Martin didn't know that. He was a brilliant guy, but they didn't know this back then. And so oftentimes when lightning strikes, they often think maybe it was God that was doing it, trying to get his attention. I, no joke, Luther thought that God was out to kill him. I'm not kidding you. He literally said, I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just don't kill me, right? And so he didn't die in the next 20 minutes. He goes, okay, good, got the message. I'm going to a monastery, right? 
And that's what he did. Now, I realize I'm paraphrasing. I'm really shortening it. And you're thinking, that's pretty stupid. Why would he do that? But, you know, this is Martin Luther. He was brilliant in a lot of ways. But in this area, he was a little weak, right? And he got in there, and he starts focusing all of his attention on the Old Testament. He loved the Old Testament because that's where the law was. He was a legal mind. You know, he's one of the, the greatest legal scholars that that generation ever produced. And you know something? It was funny how that when they had these old te- they had these these monasteries they kept their monks away from the New Testament. Can you believe that? They kept them away from it. It was like in order to, to learn from the New Testament, you had to like move up to the next level, the next tier, right? And and it's just not for everybody because there's dangerous stuff in the New Testament, right? Because we need to protect you from God's word because it's a powerful and dangerous tool. That's why we, we're going to chain the Bible to the pulpit. We're going to write it in a language that no one else understands. And then we're going to hold back on some of the juicier parts because you, you just can't handle that yet right? No, of course we don't do that. God's word wasn't written for to be chained to a pulpit. It was being written so that it would be chained to our hearts. And the moment that Martin Luther got a hold of Romans, he read the first chapter. I read this in his biography. He read, his, he read the first chapter, and according to his, his letters of the day, he got so angry at chapter one, book of Romans, he starts pounding on the Bible saying, God, this cannot be. This cannot be. It was just too easy. It was that the moment that he was changed. And that led him to write this. Don't ever forsake me. Because if I'm ever on my own, I would easily destroy it all. John Calvin also wrote a contemporary of Luther. He says, Christ was given to us by God's generosity. Okay, I can follow you there, Calvin. He says that God was, Christ was given us to be grasped and possessed by us in faith. And by partaking of him, we principally receive a double grace. And secondly, that, sancti- that we are sanctified by Christ's spirit, we, are, we may cultivate this blamelessness and a purity of life. Now, that's a pretty difficult phrase. And when you start looking at that, I realize that I'm not preaching John Calvin. I'm preaching from God's word. But this is where Habakkuk is at. He's trying to bring things back so that we can understand the awesome, amazing power of God as he begins to let that petition of of that regenerate heart to come forward. And you notice that when Calvin is saying this, the first thing he says is it all begins with that regeneration of our heart. That's where it begins. And from a regenerate heart, we are led through a pursuit of blamelessness. We are drawn holy are drawn to him to be more holy. We are drawn closer to him. As we draw closer to him, he changes us and we begin to walk together. And we should look for those times when we are walking so close to God that we can't separate ourselves at all from each other. That's what we're trying to go for. You say, well, that's really good for those people living in the 1500s, but what about a more recent generation? Well, I'll bring it forward. I know Phil, Phil's a genius. We know that. And I know Phil has, um, has read John Owen, and he's really good about that. John Owen is one of the, one of the singular minds of, of the late 1800s, early 1900s, somewhere around there. And John Owen was, was a phenomenal guy, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant thinker. And for me, I'm not that smart when it comes to this. I normally have to read him with like a book open along with a dictionary and highlighters, and I have to go back through sentences and paragraphs several times. But I like to do this, and I found this quote, and I thought it was pretty spot on, and I think it's something that we can all grasp. He says, this is John Owen, a theologian. He says, Oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live. Herein would I die. Herein I would dwell in all my thoughts and all my affections until all things below become unto me as dead and a deformed thing. 
no way suitable for the affectionate embraces I have with my Lord. That's a pretty powerful statement. That he longs for the day when there is nothing in his life that has a greater appeal than only God himself. This is what the, the, apostle, uh, the prophet is trying to tell us here. And look what he says in verse 3. He said, God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And I know everybody here as biblical scholars and, and geography oriented from the Bible days. We know where Taman and we know where Paran is at. Well, those of you that don't, I know we've got some young ones that are still in homeschool and you haven't quite gotten to this part in, that, in those lessons. But Taman and Paran are actually in the areas of Edom, okay? And it's more to the south of um, of, of Israel. And I know that means a lot to lots of people, right? It's in the south? Well, probably not. Well, here's something that I don't know if you guys ever thought about, but if you ever really read through the history of, of, of God moving through his people in the Old Testament, and there's a number of history books, Kings, Chronicles, First uh, and Second Samuel. I mean, a lot of these are good, deep histories that give us an understanding of what was happening in those times. And the one thing you'll notice is throughout the life of Israel that the enemies of God always come from the north. You ever notice that? Babylon, Nineveh, all the rest of them. Those guys all come from the north and come down for the most part. And it's always a discussion about them coming down and attacking Israel from the north. But it's almost always where God is the one that's coming up from the south or the southwest. You say, why is that? Well, if you remember, when the, when the children of Israel were coming up out of Egypt, they were marching up. They come up from, from Egypt south, moving into the northern part, into Canaan. And they stopped in a little place called the Sinai area where God came down on a mountain some things were shaking i know if you really need to be uh to to get that sort of uh, brought back out you can look at exodus chapter 19 deuteronomy chapter 33 both of those bring in these sort of elements that we're talking about and it was that great pivotal moment where god came down in a mighty voice a sound of trumpets whirlwinds fires everything was happening at once the children of israel were looking at all this and they were scared slapped to death and and this is what the prophet is pointing back to so he's reaching back into the days of moses and he's sort of bringing that back forward so that god will remember where he was and so the people now remember where he came from not from but where he led them from and then he's moving on to the next step so now that we've done a reflectful pause and I'm speaking really fast. I should slow down, shouldn't I? I know some of you are like dictating. I feel bad for you. So this is where it gets kind of cool. He says, his splendor covers the heavens. And the earth is full of praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. His rays are flashing from his hand. And there is a hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence, a plague comes after him. There is a fear there. He stood and surveyed the earth. He measured the earth. That's what that word means, surveyed. He measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The hills that were ancient collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw his tents, the tents of Kushan, under distress. And the tents of the land of Midian were trembling. In essence, what he's saying there in verse 7 is that the people that were in those lands were hiding behind the skirts of their wives and their tents, scared to death to come outside. That's the, that's the transliteration from the Hebrew that they do a good job here with the word to word. Is they were scared, slapped to death. And they should be. Because the very next section, starting in verse 18, going all the way down to 15, is God is about to open a can on somebody. And you don't want to be that somebody he's about to open up on. 
He said, did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your, or was your wrath against the sea that, ro- that you rode on your horses and, and on your chariots of salvation? Was your bow made bare? The rods of chastisement are, are sworn. You cleaved the earth. With rivers, the mountains, you saw you and quaked. It's, it's pretty terrible stuff. It's actually kind of interesting because if you read uh, verses 8 through 15, and I'm not going to have time to read all that today. Our time is coming closer to the end. I know some of you are saying, well, that's okay. We can probably go. Others are like, well, i got crock pots cooking. So we, gotta, we do have to move forward, and I understand that. But I would encourage you this week to read verses 8 through 15 and then compare what it said in Exodus chapter 19. Because you'll find that this is probably the largest, most accurate description of what we would call a theophany we have in Scripture. This is the most clearest picture of what it's like for God to show up and say, I'm here. Deal with me. Right? That's, you can't get any more clear than that. He says, here I am, guys. Soak it up. Enjoy it. Take it all in. It's almost like God's doing one of these numbers. How do I look to you now? Right? This is what God's doing. How often do we get this, right? I mean, this is where he's at. Now, we don't know for a fact whether or not Habakkuk actually had this vision, right? We don't know if he's seeing this or if he or the Holy Spirit's just sort of giving him the words to write down because he couldn't really handle seeing all this. I and mean, remember what it says in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. Phil, you remember this because I know you like memorized Deuteronomy. You're like good with that. It, it says basically Moses was in the presence of God and then he came down reflecting the shining glory, the Shekinah glory of God. And so much so they said, please put a veil over your face because we can't handle what you're handling. You're much better than we are, Moses. We love you. We're so happy you're going in there and not us. Can you just hold back on the whole shining face thing, right? That's what they're saying. And so we, we struggle with this. And I know, I know that Habakkuk is dealing with this in a powerful way because somehow God opened up the, 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 the revelation of himself before Habakkuk. And now he's left wondering what's going on. And he doesn't know. And I know he's thinking to himself, man, if everybody just saw what I saw, if everybody could just sort of take a gander at what I'm, what I'm looking at, if any, if, and we, we think about this all the time, if, if only people would just, if God would just show up in power, right, and just do one of these Charlton Heston moments where he just says, hey, I'm here, and then so many people would turn to him. But the reality is that's not the case. In fact, the modern church is plagued with two major problems. The two biggest problems I see, now there's a lot of other little problems, but I think the biggest problem is, number one, is biblical illiteracy. You know, I could probably take a poll, and I, not in this church, because you guys are biblical scholars, but in most churches, you could sort of go through and do a general Sunday school survey, right? Where you just ask basic questions about things in the Bible. Like, for instance, the Hebrew names of the three boys in the fire, right? You might know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but that wasn't their names, that was their slave titles given to them by a pagan king, right? But what were their real names? Now, Phil knows that. It was Hananiah, Mishael, and Azaria, right? Well, you know that because we have that in our back pocket because we're biblical scholars. But do you know how many people don't know that? Lots of people. Do you realize, well, that's, that's a tough one, right? We're throwing, we're throwing, playing hardball. We're throwing a fastball when this should be softball, right? Which is a lob and easy one. Well, you know, if you just ask, you ask somebody what salvation means, you know, ask somebody why we do baptism. And how we should do baptism. 
Maybe if, if somebody just came to you and said, oh, you go to that Baptist church. Well, I've always been wondering, what in the world is Baptist belief? Because I've been to Methodist, I've been to Presbyterian, I've been to Pentecostal, and they're really crazy. But, you know, I've been to all these other places, and I'm just wondering, what in the world do Baptists believe, right? Can you tell them? You'd be surprised how little we really know about what God's Word says. You say, well, well Pastor Al, you're a, trained, you're a trained scholar. You're supposed to know these things, right? Yeah, maybe. And I, I told everybody I'm a Baptist till the Baptists stop believing in the Bible, and then I'm just not going to be a Baptist anymore because I'm ultimately a biblical Christian right here. I'm following the words of God. And as long as, I, as, long as I'm in God's Word and am doing it word for word and doing what I'm supposed to do, then I know I'm right where I need to be. And that's the beginning of it. But biblical illiteracy is one of the biggest problems we have. This, and then there's this other one that, that really is kind of crazy, right? That's easy. Everybody says, oh, yeah, I know that church down the road. They're all fluff and no, no stuff, right? It's in Texas, we'd say all hat, no, no cow or no herd or I don't know. I don't know what they say in Texas. Mike's the Texan, um, and it frustrates me. But anyway, moving on. You know, we, we know about that for other people, but there's something else that's going on. This is something I think that's a bigger problem we have is that we see people in our lives that are sold out for God, and our first thought is, oh, man, that cat is weird, right? We don't really know how to deal with somebody that's completely sold out for God. We're talking about the kind of person that, 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 that reflects what I just read about these, these ancient fathers, you know, these people that were the leaders in the church at one time. We don't know what to do. We get sort of weirded out, sort of creeped out by people that are really pursuing Jesus Christ because of a lot of reasons. One, we feel guilty. We feel frustrated. We feel like we want that or we'd like to have more. And then when, when, when we get a little bit of guilty and, and we, we go to a Bible study a little more often, maybe we'll, we'll come to Sunday school for a few weeks. Mike's a, always happy when that happens because his class swells a little more. And, and we get you know, tanked up just a little more. But the problem is we're still in that we want, we want, we want mode, right? It's all about us. We're still on that horizontal plane. We're not looking vertical. It's all about us. It's our story. That's where we are. The prophet's not there. The prophet's like, he's left himself so far behind. He's in a plane that, that few people ever get to, but all of us crave. See, we were, we were designed to want to glorify God in, for all eternity. We were designed to want to be part of the dance that he is in. We were designed to be loved. We were designed to want to be loved. We don't chase him like we should. And there's usually a couple reasons why. The biggest reason that I face all the time with a lot of folks, even my own self, is that ultimately we believe we're not good enough for him. You ever had that feeling? My grandfather, as far as I know, is in hell today. And it hurts me. And I love my grandfather. He was an integral part of my life. My mother's parents were weird. And not in a good biblical, theological way, just weird. And they did horrible things to my mother and, and the other kids there. And so we didn't really deal with them much. My only grandparent I had was my father's family. And my grandfather was somebody that I ran to all the time. And when he passed away, there was a deep sense of loss because he was the guy that I would call when I had issues about wiring a house or fixing my car or doing some carpentry issues. He knew just about anything and everything I needed to ask him on. All the practical stuff of life, things that I'm, I'm a little oblivious to. And it was really hard. And I asked him once, I said, Grandpa, you know uh, all the things. You've been to Sunday school. You've been to church. You've taken Grandma there when she was alive. You know, you know all these answers. I said, do you why won't you just turn and give your heart to him? And he looked me in the eye and he goes, that's for some people, but it's not for me. I've done too many bad things. He could never forgive me. 
I'm not worth it. And then he turned the, he turned the attention somewhere else and wouldn't talk anymore about it. And he died, as far as I know, believing he was not good enough to be saved. That salvation was for better men than him. And so that's tough. Obviously, we don't believe that. We're sitting here. But I know there are people here that have the same problems because sometimes we believe that we don't need him. We live in a very affluent society. You say, affluent? Have you looked at my bank account? Well, no, I haven't. But I know this, that if you earn more than about sixteen to $20,000 a year, then you make, you're, you make more than like 90% of the world. That the majority of the people in the, wor- in the world are an abject poverty. And they're lucky if they can get a dollar a week to feed themselves. We oftentimes spend way too much time focusing on our belief. The next coming weeks we're going to be talking about things like the foundations that we build our lot of Christian walk on, that we're talking, we're talking about um, forgiveness and some other issues. And hopefully we'll be able to answer some of these questions that are deep inside you. But the reality is we do need him. And we need him as deeply as we need the air that we breathe. And I'm going to give you a little, just a little bit of insight here. And I, I shared this with Terry because I didn't know she'd be back, but I'm glad you made it back. And, and so you can close your ears. You already heard this part, right? And that is, and this is something, this is, you ought to write this down. This is something I, I've come to the conclusion of this week. And, and that is, for those people whom God has great things planned for, he wounds deeply because in order to be able to be where God wants us to be we need to be broken and I've I've looked at if you look at the lives of some of the greatest preachers we've ever had and actually do like a deep biographical look and look at the the men and the lives they had you'll find a brokenness there that you've you can't even quantify there's a cost to following God you have to be willing to give every single thing up to him. From your bank account, to your career, to your very good name. And many of us struggle with this. And I can promise you this, if you choose to follow him like you've never felt followed before, there will be a cost. But I'll tell you, it's worth paying it. Because following Jesus and giving him everything we have is some of the greatest things we could ever possibly do. I'm going to we're going to come to the end now. I know we're, we're, we're closing up, and, and I'm not really going to do an altar call this week because I'm looking here, and we're mostly home folk. I don't see any new people. You know, the reality is if you're not saved, you know it. You don't need me to tell you. Holy Spirit's been dealing with you a long time. That's why you're here today. And if you need Jesus, I guarantee you, when we're done with this service, there will be someone here that would love to take you into another place, quiet, and share with you what the Bible says about how to be saved. But the reality is, we're all stuck in this spot right now where we're trying to figure out how we can move our religion, our theology, from a horizontal to a vertical, right? And this is what the prophet says. In verse 16, he says this. He says, I heard... And my inward parts trembled. My guts twisted up in a way I can't even speak. He said, at the sound of my at, at, at the sound, my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones. And in my place I tremble because I must wait, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. That's a deep statement. 
But then he goes on. He doesn't stop there. This gets into his statement of faith. And he says, verse 16, 17, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, there will be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olives should fall, the fields will produce no food. Though the flocks shall be cut off from the fold, and there will be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet. He makes me walk on my high places. This is the prophet. All that's being said. He knows that his nation is about to be ripped apart. There's a good chance that in all this vast marauding that even he may pass away and die. But he says, even if all that happens, I will still exalt in the Lord my God. It's a pretty powerful concrete statement from an individual who was facing death. I mean, God had already told him, you're done. I'm sending the forces in. There'll be a precious few people will live through this. And there's no guarantee Habakkuk was one of them. In fact, because we know there is no Habakkuk too, we can probably assume, we can't assume anything. We don't know. I'm going to close with this. It's a favorite quote of mine. If you've been here any length of time, you've heard me quote it. You know I love C.S. Lewis. You know I think he's a phenomenal thinker, an individual that that truly uh, understands the depth of our walk as we seek to understand God. And he said this in one of his great um, uh, sermons called Mere Christianity. It's one of the greatest quotes I've ever heard. He says this. He said, It would seem that our Lord God finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We oftentimes think that we have this powerhouse of of desire for God because we prayed to him like five days ago, right? And so he should be thankful for that. And we showed up at church and we stayed awake. That's a good thing. Well, the preacher did bang and jump around. That helped a lot. But but we stayed awake. God, I got you, man. Right? That's what we think. No, no. our, our, Our desires for him are not too strong. They are far too weak. Lewis says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what it is and what it's meant when God offers us a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You say, well, pastor, I know there are some churches that are far too easy, some Christians, but we're not one of those. Like, well, if that's the case, then why does reality TV have such a sway over America today? I think everybody in here can name off at least, except maybe a couple of you that don't have TVs in your home, but almost every one of you in here can name at least three reality shows that you know other people watch, right? Because you don't watch them. We have things that captivate us. Is it God? Should it be God? I think Lewis is saying it should be. Where are you today? Is God so captivating your heart and your mind and your soul that you can't take your eyes off of him? Has your religion and faith moved to that vertical spot where all you're thinking about is him and you know that he's got everything else because he's handling this. If our eyes are on him, we're not looking where we're walking and God says, don't worry about it. Even if you trip and stumble, I will still pick you up. You just look on me. You focus on me. Are we doing that? If we're not, we need to this morning. If your religion is a vertical or horizontal religion, you need to ask Jesus what, he, what, you need, what you need to do and what he is willing to do to turn that from horizontal to vertical. As we turn our eyes to Jesus, let's go before the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the day you've given us. Lord, I know that we've, 
we've bounced around and talked quite a bit. We've, we've spent some time with the, with, with, with the prophet Habakkuk, Lord, and I'm sure that Habakkuk's up there with you thinking, I don't think you quite got what I was saying, but, but Lord, I know, I know that we'll never fully understand what it is to be with you until we're really with you full time. And Father, I know that that day may be coming, but like the prophet or the apostle Paul says, it's better for a season for us to be here because we know that people here need us. Well, we long for the day when you'll call us home. But until that day happens, Lord, allow us to be your effective instruments. Allow us to be your hands and feet in a world that needs to know what you're like. Father, I ask that you would just radically transform all of us this week as we seek to understand the message you've given us in the final chapter of Habakkuk, Father, I ask that you will radically change our hearts and our minds and our souls. Bring us to a place where we have no choice but to look up. Father, if it means driving us to our knees, then do it. Father, if it means ripping apart things that we thought we needed, I pray, Lord, that you do what it takes. Father, bring us to a place where we can come before you with our eyes turned up towards heaven with tears streaming down our face as we long to see the loving embrace of your son coming towards us like the prodigal son saw when his father ran towards him. Father, I ask, I beg that you'll give us that opportunity this week. Father, I know you know the hearts of each and every person in this building. And if there's anyone in here that has never had that experience, has never seen your love, has never felt your arms around their soul and their bodies, Father, I ask that you won't let them leave here today without getting their heart right. For the rest of us, Lord, as, as we're thinking about the next steps, Lord, I ask that you'll give us a moment of restful pause where we're not thinking about who's playing who and what game where or what food is burning at this moment. Father, I ask that you'll give us a moment just to say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, amen, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, Lord. Father, we need you. Move in us in a powerful way. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we just put this, we put this and all of our concerns in your hands because we know, Lord, you are faithful. We pray this because of what your son did on the cross, because Jesus went to that hill and bore all the sins of humanity, because he gave us the right to come into your presence and call you Father. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our amazing, powerful, beautiful Savior and your son. Amen.